Welcome to Harvard Business Review's The New World of Work. I'm Adi Ignatius, Editor-in-Chief of HBR, and each week on the show, we talk to a top-tier CEO about this new world of work that we are defining, and we really talk about all aspects of it. We have a great guest this week, but before I introduce him, I just want to uh, give a quick shout-out to our sponsor, and that's Unisys. Unisys is an IT company that builds critical solutions trusted by demanding businesses and governments around the world. They partner with clients to enable cloud transformation, protect critical operations, and empower the modern workforce. Visit unisys.com to learn more. All right, so our guest this week is Reed Hoffman. Reed is an entrepreneur, an author, a venture capitalist, a podcaster. He's probably best known as the co-founder in 2002 of LinkedIn and was its first CEO. Full disclosure, we are on LinkedIn right now if you are watching us live. He's served on the boards of many companies, including currently Microsoft. He's now partner at the venture capital firm Greylock Partners, and he hosts the popular podcast, Masters of Scale. So, Reed, welcome to the show. Awesome to be here. Great to see you. So, how does it feel appearing on the platform that you yourself created? I mean, this, this is probably the definition of a metaverse. <laughs> well, it is a definition of a metaverse insofar as, as people are like, oh, this metaverse is a new thing, but we've already experienced it. We've already been in it. The internet's a fortune of the metaverse. Uh, you know, StreamYard and, and Teams and Zoom are part of the metaverse. And so we're actually in the metaverse. And, you know, obviously, because the, the entire idea with kind of LinkedIn is how do you empower people to be to take as much, you know, direction and intentionality and iteration and, and opportunity in their professional careers, Obviously, doing this on LinkedIn is awesome from my perspective. So, um, always delighted to. And actually, you know, it, we should do more of this. I, I, uh, you and I have talked over the years, and there's a bunch of stuff that um, that you think about, and you're, you're the super thoughtful person. So, uh, whether it's LinkedIn or others, that would be awesome. Yeah, well, that's that's great. I'd love to do more. And and just for people who who you know are are wrestling with the definition of metaverse, this is actually not the metaverse. This is this is meta, but it's not metaverse. But but maybe we'll talk more about specifically about the metaverse and possibilities because I know you know we've already gotten some uh, audience questions about that. And by the way, if you wanna if you wanna ask you know raise a question that I can ask, read, type it into the comment box. We'll try to get to a bunch of these uh, along the way. But uh, you know a lot of the questions that I have and that and that people who are watching have it are about innovation. And, you know, you, you've been involved in a number of companies that have been super creative, super innovative, and have scaled, which is, which is you know, you've written the book about, about how to scale. I guess my question is, you know, tell us something about innovation that we don't know that might be of use to our audience. Uh, always a great question. That's kind of where is the, the unique thing. Let me start with something that probably a number of people know, but then move to maybe things that are a little bit more esoteric or more you know, side, you know, kind of subtle. Um, the first one is there is no innovation without risk. And so you can't have, you know, frequently what happens in these, uh, in these kind of things is oh, I'll take an innovation and I'll, and it'll just work. And obviously there's ways you try to be innovative in, in risk intelligent ways. You try to maximize the chance that it will work. You try to minimize the down, the, 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 the cost of it not working. You try to have some things where if it didn't work, it still works in some, you know, kind of viable way of, of kind of, of and making work, but but literally, if you don't think if if you you're doing you're trying to be innovative and you don't see the risk in what you're doing, either you're not being innovative, you're being blind to the risk, or um, uh, you know maybe it's just not that interesting. And so that's one. Now the more subtle ways of thinking about kind of innovation are um, kind of like okay, so 
which innovations may have an interesting chance to work. And this is actually one of the things where you have to intersect a number of different things. So typically, of course, again, people will think, hey, what are the platform changes? Is it metaverse change? Is it an AI change? Is it a cloud change? You know, is it the ongoing mobile change, et cetera? And how does that lead to what the changes are in the thing that I'm working in? And, you know, how does that play to our product or service? How does it play to our supply chain? Or how does that play to how do we work? Uh, and then asking a whole set of questions around these things are generally how you can lead to innovations. But then you want to begin to say, okay, it's this combination of, of yes, I've got a good idea. I might be... Um, Kind of, kind of adjusting to a meme that people are talking about, but I'm also thinking about in concrete terms about like how does our product or service work? How do our company work? Because you know you could say, well, there's like you know like a classic one, and it's kind of like metaverse is a very common one, which is part of the reason I actually answered in a kind of a direct way of saying actually, in fact, we're already in part of the metaverse because people being clear about what is that metaverse so like is it oh we're all going to be in body suits with a, a head camera and, and that's how everything's going to work now and it's going to be all like ready player one but everything else and and i think there's once you begin to really think about that you realize that that future is not near term uh to us and that actually in fact the more interesting thing when you're looking at patterns of innovation are what's happening in the next three five ten years and this is actually i think probably the 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 last point I'll make on the innovation is 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 thinking about timeframes is actually really important. Timeframes for when is this platform change happening? Timeframes and how can you execute on things? And what is that intersection? And and not every time you have a good idea, if you're not throwing out some of your good ideas, then you're probably also not being discerning enough um, to say, okay, yeah, I had this really good idea about how to use video, but it doesn't really fit within the timeframes, and so I'm going to do something else. And so anyway, those are some. And I'm happy to go into depth in any of these, but those are some kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Jackson Pollocking throwing paint on a canvas on innovation. Yeah, no, those are, those are all great points. And actually, I'm going to, there's an audience question that really builds on this. I'm going to go to that right away. And this is from Alex in London, which is, you know, how, how, how do you scale innovation where the profitability of your legacy products can get in the way of kind of innovation and R&D? Well, it's a, it's a, Classic problem, you know. Obviously, the innovator's dilemma is usually the way this is this is this is historically described. You know, Clay Christensen. And um, the short answer is: is it takes um, is it takes some leadership and it takes some grit in order to do it. And usually, what you want to be able to do is you want to say, "Hey, if we're going to be innovatively disruptive, we want to do it to ourselves." Um, and so you start you start doing that process. Uh, you'll get organizational tension because your whole organization will be around your legacy product. You'll be still in a place where you say, you know, businesses are about tuning efficiency. Um, and so that's part of the reason why you have like HBR and you have, you know, business schools. In other words, like how do you reliably put in a dollar and get out $2 or $5 or, you know, da, da. and it's like the legacy business will clearly do that. Whereas the new thing is like, well, wait a minute, are we taking that away? Are we destroying ourselves? Would someone else do it if we didn't do it, et cetera? And the answer is you have to start trying to do it. It's one of the reasons why I think one of the things that is a practice that the disruptive part of the management of companies in Silicon Valley is you always do some red teaming. You always say, how would an innovator come after us? Okay, can we experiment with that? Can we, can we own that channel? Can we 
be uh, doing whatever the disruption is, the platform, the the lower cost of product or service, the, you know, because the innovators, Lemo Clay Christensen was classically, you know, studied very much on hard drives and 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 kind of cost of that. And we be doing that and 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 making that happen. But without leadership, that can't happen. And the leadership ultimately comes from the CEO uh, and the executives who say we need to be doing this. And a lot of times, unfortunately, this is when leaders are acting like owners are not an owners of the future in decades and so forth. It's like, well, if I don't have to do this innovation and then I can hand it off to the next generation, that's frequently where companies can get into trouble because they don't, they haven't been taking the risks and making the efforts on the new products. So I'm going to do one more innovation question. You're kind of innovation guy. So I'm going to pepper you with one more innovation question and that this is actually from Steve Kapp in Brooklyn. So it's really about innovation opportunities that, that have maybe been created by the pandemic. I mean, as he puts it, as startups aim to solve problems for employers adapting to long-term distributed work, in what areas do you see promising opportunities in HR and tech and whatever? So um, there's a couple of places where, where structurally you should look at the opportunities. So one is, you know, the kind of the classic uh, aphorism, never waste a good crisis. You know, in this kind of thing, it's like, look, everything's volatile, it's been shaken up some, trying to predict where the, um, where it's going in this volatility and going and, and skating to where the puck is going, uh, not where it is, but where it's going. Um, some of that is to say, look, we're, we're accelerating our digital transformation. It was one of the things that, you know, kind of Satya Nadella said very early in the pandemic is, you know, each month we're seeing a year of acceleration of the digital transformation. And I think that's uh, continuing to be the case and say, okay, well, given that, how is the, how, how, how are, uh, how's the market condition, customers, individuals, et cetera, to this digital transformation? Where is that going to be heading? How do I uh, get there in that, in the kind of the time frame? and what am I doing? And I think that that, um, you know, and obviously, uh, you know, some areas that are obvious is, you know, things where, well, we're now all conditioned a lot more to doing work through, you know, kind of Teams and Zoom for, for, for this kind of thing. How do we make that work? What's the iteration of that? When you think about HR and kind of things like, okay, how do we build, you know, company building, team building, trust building, culture building? How does all that uh, happen now that you've got some it, wherever it, it wherever it, it actually ends up, you have some more distributed, some video work and workforce, and some more distributed team, and some more distributed work processes. Um, you know, how does that all work out? And those, I think, we've seen obviously some great innovations and some great acceleration. But you know, it's 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 usually in this tech stuff is people tend to call it to the new thing too early. Um, like, oh, okay, we're still in the mobile revolution. We're still in the cloud revolution. We're still in. The pandemic and 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 shared collaboration of the fact that we are in this collaborative environment from distributed locations, and so you said, well, Zoom's obvious, but then what else might make a difference? Well, like you know, products like Coda, where you say, well, okay, you're redesigning your workflow for how you would want to work, and it's a platform for internet, you know, kind of collaborative workflow in terms of how you do it. That would be an example, and and things like that are the things where you start thinking, okay, I'm I'm looking out for how does this digital transformation accelerate in terms of what's going? So part of what you just said is that we don't, we don't quite know where we are and where we're going. Um, on the other hand, we have to decide how we're organizing ourselves for work. And, you know, this question is probably, it's more about, it's more biased than science, but, you know, what's your sense? Do people, do we need to be, you know, is the default to try to get as many people back into the office together 
to collaborate, to create and sustain culture? Or is that, do you think, an outdated mo uh, notion at this point? So I think all of the reasons why we have, we have gathered um, in cities, in companies, in other kinds of collaborative work environments, those reasons still persist. Um, you know, there's, there, and it isn't 100%. There's like, you know, some percentage of people who are like, oh my God, I, I'm undistracted by meetings and I'm allowed to sit in my home office and, and, and do some stuff and I'm so much more productive. And there are some people who are much more productive that way. And by the way, part of it is recognizing who those people are and how you work with them. And now we've got, we've got this exposure. How do we make this blended environment work? And so I think that, that there will be persistence and learnings from this kind of distributed work. On the other hand, I think there's a higher percentage of people who get energy from being in the room with each other who, um, like I can tell my level of creative problem solving is better uh, when I'm in the room, you know, with a whiteboard or something else and kind of and working on it and, and kind of riffing than I am on Zoom or on Teams. It's, it's, it's just, I'm not terrible and I can make it work. And obviously the last two years, that's what we've been doing. But I've already kind of, you know, now, you know, vaccinated and tested, you know, done some of this stuff where you're in the room and it's and it and, and the pace and the on targetness and everything else, because because time always matters in these coefficients is good. And I think all of that kind of thing will, generally speaking, lead people back in the room. And I think part of it is they say, well, but wait a minute, it, it's working well now. And you're like, well, it's working that well now when it's been everyone distributed. But then once you begin to re-aggregate. Um, you know, the Hamiltonian phrase of being in the room where it happens is like, well, actually, in fact, a key discussion was had at the water cooler or at the cafeteria where you were, you were having a coffee together or a key thing was, you know, kind of in a walking out of that meeting was like, you know, I thought about this during the meeting. And that's part of the reason why then people say, well, we need to aggregate. And that's a natural way that we tend to operate. And I think that that will generally happen across all the things. Now, my advice to leaders is not to overly force it because obviously people want to see in their leaders that they care about my work style, my productivity, my happiness, my health. And so they don't want to be like, hey, you know, you sure you're saying you're fine being at home, get your ass back in the office. And it's like, no, 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 no. Look, we're work, we're, we're, we care about is how we work really well together and how, and how you and the team both really work well together. And that's the thing we're focusing on. And I think that will naturally end up with, with people broadly back in collaborative circumstances, even though you'll see lots of innovations. Maybe it'll be like Tuesday or each group chooses its work at home, you know, day um, and, and or the no meeting day, you know, kind of off the Toby Lutka, you know, kind of a Shopify, somehow they operate, which you can hear on the Masters of Scale podcast. And so, and so those kinds of things I think will persist and continue. Excellent uh, plug for the Masters of Scale podcast, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> um, so a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Sandy Spiker, the CEO of IDEO on the show, who, you know, we were talking about some of the same stuff. And she was saying, you know, what they're trying to figure out is being physically present shouldn't feel like a punishment or a mere requirement, that there has to be a, a pull factor beyond, I mean, everything you may say about, about collaboration, about the whiteboard, about the water cooler may be true, but not everyone's going to buy it. And it's hard to, it's hard to actually prove it. So they're trying to think really, so what are, what's the pull factor, whether it's food, whether it's, you know, hackathons, whether it's dance parties, I mean, just something where you need to be physically there and there's a pull, there's something, something fun and attractive or valuable to being in the same room. So I think, um, I think the pull factor is a great idea and I think it's important to do. And it's part of showing that like we care about it. We're not, we're not mandating. It isn't like, 
you know, you are a cog in our machine and your cog needs to be here. It's like, no, we're organic, we're a team. We, we, we're, we play together and so forth and we work together. Um, and I think food and kind of coffee and other kinds of things are a really excellent way of doing that. Uh, I think that the, uh, my general nudge for folks is to do things that align to that, to, to the work and to the intersection. So it, it might be, it isn't just like, oh, the entertainment's here or the, or the, or the, or the exercise class or the gym is here. Um, I think it might be, um, you know, things like, um, you know, kind of, um, you know, like, okay, so when we're working together, we have all of these things that make the, our work and collaboration more easy and together. Like, so for example, if your meeting room has a bunch of things that make all of that meeting much more, you know, kind of easy and fun, like you could say, well, blending them together is like, say, for example, you put Nespresso machines in every meeting room, and then you had, you know, kind of post-it whiteboards and things, and you had some like, you know, here, like we were asking about innovation, like here are some some good meeting prompts and questions and things to do. And obviously you can put those up in, in your you know, collaborative working environments online too, but things that kind of align more to the intersection between the work and the projects you're doing and the way that you're being effective there and making it more fun and being more present with each other. And I think those are the kinds of places to hunt for the pull factors and then look for the ones that are also unique to your culture. So I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the role of business in society. Um, you know, I know that you, you know, you're a fairly activist uh, uh, business person yourself. Um, so I, I guess my question is, you know, more and more people are are asking businesses to weigh in and even help solve seemingly intractable social problems. And I guess the question is, is that in fact the role of business? And if it is. How can business, you know, play that role effectively and not, you know, spread themselves thinly and and not really make a difference? It's a great question. I think, I think the short answer is, employees, customers, even investors. Although investors tend to be, you know, more like just, hey, what's the equity value, et cetera, um, care more and more about kind of what your impact in society is. And it's helpful to your business across a number of, of frames to, uh, to, to be leaders in this. And then you say, well, how do you not just say, well, okay, everyone's climate change, so we're all going to be climate change, we're all going to be sustainable. And by the way, climate change, obviously a big one, and, and saying something about what you're doing to, to important you know, current zeitgeists and, 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 and massive important phenomena like climate change is really important. Um, but the... Uh, but what you do is you think, well, what's the mission of my business? And what is, the, what is the thing that my business is really trying to do? And how do I invest in that in order to make a very big difference? And that's where you put your real dollars. And part of how to look at it is you're, to some degree, that efficiency we talked about businesses earlier is, is businesses are platforms. So like if you took LinkedIn, you say, um, like what kinds of things can LinkedIn do with a dollar that is differentially applied to things that make a big difference in society? If you said, well you know, um, what we should do is we should be investing in, in carbon capture in the oceans, not data centers and so that we could do, but like there's something like, you know, something like that is like, well, we don't have the platform for that. Similarly, like if we were launching a business and we were saying, hey, LinkedIn should launch an apparel business, like well, we don't have a platform for that. We will be terrible. We'll be really inefficient. On the other hand, what LinkedIn is really good at is how do you help like reskilling? How do you elevate talent? 
Uh, how do you do things like that? And you say, well, okay, so what are the ways that LinkedIn should be philanthropic? Um, and you say, well, actually, in fact, we say, look, well, you have this big thing where part of the thing that's really important to society is, uh, you know, kind of diversity inclusion with new skill sets and so on. So we should have, uh, you know, kind of projects for that, uh, for the kind of skill platform we have. We should take things like, and, you know, LinkedIn's been doing this for, you know, 15 plus years, you know, veterans and, and kind of applying their skill sets into the workforce and society. Uh, we should be working with cities with this LinkedIn Cities project. Which is uh, where are the what are the industries and the skills of the future that are relevant to the kind of city regions and how do we help cities uh, invest intelligently in that to help their citizens and help their industries uh, you know kind of navigate that because we have you know kind of data and perspective and other kinds of things that can help with that and so we go these are the places where we spend a, do a dollar and we get ten dollars output and 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 aligns with what our mission is and why our employees are here and why our our shareholders you know buy into us and the kinds of things we can we can do and we can talk about and that's the thing to kind of look at so you go whatever your your uh your company is you go here's what our mission is and here's where because we have this platform with amplified value here's where we can put in some money and make a difference. And then you say, well, how much money should we put in? And so are those little, well, how, how scale are you? You know, how profitable are you? How much are, is it important for your employees and for your shareholders and for your, um, you know, customers to be showing that you are leaders in this area uh, in order to be doing it? And then that roughly, you know, and then all these things are calls of art and leadership, then you invest in that. And I think that's one of the really important things. And I'll, I'll actually end with one last point on this, which is, you know, something was obviously, you know, pretty tense in 2019 and 2020 was, you know, where should business leaders be playing a role in politics? And obviously the typical answer is kind of like, well, but wait, we have both, you know, Republicans and Democrats and we have a wide variety of view and we should be, you know, kind of um, open for shareholders and for employees and for customers. And that's, I think, broadly correct. On the other hand, I think actually, in fact, there are issues in politics that are fundamentally good business issues. So for example, rule of law, stability in the society. Like when you get to things where you get this kind of like, look, science leads to vaccination, leads to public health, like coming out on saying, look, vaccination is not a political issue, not a partisan issue, but is actually in fact a way that we can be a healthy society together. And actually in fact is, um, you know, like you can look at it and say, look, the, the science very clearly shows that it's much safer to be vaccinated for yourself than not to be vaccinated. And it's also part of being safe to other people. Because if you said, well, I can just go risk other people by saying I individually choosing not to be vaccinated because I'm potentially breathing on them and spreading a disease to other people that might kill older people or might kill people with you know, weaker immune systems, they're like, well, that's not a freedom question. That's a, that's a public health question. And those are the kinds of things that business leaders can weigh in on, even though there will be criticism from people saying that's partisan. You're like, no, 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 that's not partisan, that's science, that's rule of law, that's kind of thing. And, that, and, and where that is, and you just kind of say, part of when you know that you have to be a good leader is not when it's easy, like saying, we believe in excellence, we believe in shareholder returns. Well, okay, great, and that's important, but, but you don't get criticism for that. It's the places where you get some, you have to make a decision in some areas of difficulty, that's when true leadership is actually shown and demonstrated. And so I think this is an important area that all growing business leaders need to do. But as per your question, it's it's focus to the things that that you can really contribute and help on. 
So you, you, you've been talking about leadership, and I want to I want to press you on that a little bit. You've been a CEO. You've invested in in a lot of CEOs, probably some successful, some not so successful. So partly, you know, in terms of what you just talked about, but more broadly, what what does good leadership look like in twenty twenty two? Well, I think so. What's clearly, I think, one of the things that people are kind of illusion, delusion, hopeful on is they say, "Wow, the." 90s and the 2000s were so awesome. Like, hey, we just fixed this and this, we'll get back to it. I think those times are gone. I think we are in continued crisis and kind of volatility. And I think that's years into the future. And it's not just the pandemic. Um, there's obviously kind of, uh, you know, global tensions and competition. There's political disorder. There's, there's a whole set of different things. And then we've got climate change, which we've been ignoring um, effectively for too long. And my own personal view is, is, is really how we've been ignoring it is by not massively investing in technology, uh, carbon capture, uh, you know, geoengineering, uh, energy, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, all governments should be investing in nuclear fission as a plan, you know, call it, you know, uh, you know H, you know, kind of all the plans that make it work because obviously the technology has gotten a lot involved, uh, more involved. And I, so I've been doing it personally as kind of philanthropic because I'm not a professional investor in, in energy and breakthrough energy investors and, you know, Bill Gates and all the rest as well of doing this. And so, um, and so I think that the, 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 the key thing is to say, it's going to be continued crisis, continued volatility. And so then what do you do as a leader? Well, you have to, to in that environment, get some stability, get some coherence in how you're operating together, identify very clearly what future you're trying to build towards, um, why it is you're making some of these hard calls, calls that other people might make differently or might question you on where your ethics and values are and why you're saying this is the ethical thing um, that we're investing in. This is the thing that we're doing uh, because there's obviously tons and tons of things to do and you can't do all of them as a business. It isn't what you should do as a team. It isn't what you should do for your investors, but you can do some. It's like, it's a little bit like, um, you know, kind of like always be doing something that's really good uh, in the world, but that doesn't mean you have to do everything. And then how much? Well, that's a choice of what you can do and where you think your your real ability to contribute is. So as promised, I, I want to come back to the metaverse. We started by talking about it, and you said both that, well, in some ways it's already here, and also that, you know, in, in the real sense, it's still quite a ways away. So help us, you know, those of us without great imaginations for, for how technology can, can change things, you know, how might a metaverse world or, or whatever, change the world of work, improve the world of work, hopefully. Well, so I think, by the way, that's part of the reason is that we're already doing that. I mean, we already have much better ability to do hybrid. We have much better ability to, to bring, um, you know, kind of people together. We now have like, oh, we have this amazing talent, you know, that's in, you know, Wyoming or in, you know, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, Florida or where and somewhere else, and we can bring them in together into into a kind of company and work together. And I think that's that's part of what's what's new. And we have not just these initial tools with video conferencing and so forth, but we have a whole suite of other kind of uh, uh, net network native. You might say even multiplayer foundational tools like Coda and others coming in in order to make this work. Figma, other things, and so um, and so I think that the uh, so I think that that, you know, kind of part of, of what we're seeing will, will be 
you know, in effect continuing. And those are all part of the metaverse. Now, that being said, people like the Ready Player One, the Snow Crash, the wow, like we can have a completely new kind of fanciful environment. I do think, by the way, that there will be like visualization tools and there will be the way to kind of like, like jointly immerse yourself in simulations and, you know, to take things like you could see the kind of the, you know, when the, in the film Minority Report, some of the things were, you know, kind of, of, of interface things were, were being worked on at the MIT Media Lab were brought in to show you how you could be like kind of moving data and images around and so forth. And I think we'll see more of that. And I think we'll see them through these devices. And I think that will continue to amplify. But I don't think what people tend to think because they've seen these kind of movies um, and read this science fiction that's like all of a sudden we're going to be in haptic bodysuits, you know, and, and that's the way we're going to be working. And you're like, well, actually, in fact, of the 4 million inputs that we have into our brain, 3 million for our eyes, and a lot of our eyes would be able to see people's faces and, and to see when they're kind of like, oh, they're looking a little bored or uncertain or they're looking really interested and, and how they're responding. And that's part of the kind of collaboration. And that's part of the reason why I think, you know, it's like, for example, you know, like in, in, in kind of crystal terms, like, would you want to be given your performance review by an avatar, <laughs> right? Or would you rather be seeing someone who's doing it? And so, so you kind of like, okay, like what are the places where it really adds something magical and different and not just kind of like, oh, that's different. And that's where I think the world of work as we head to metaverse will be becoming. So you put your finger on, I mean, Zoom is, you know, not that complicated a technology and we sort of talk about Zoom fatigue, but it's, it's actually kind of good because it, it is it is very intimate. It's very up close, and it, it's exactly what you say. You you know you really are getting, you know, a, a close up look at people, a close up look at faces, and and ability, an ability to kind of read the emotion. Um, you know, with all these new technologies, I, I mean, I have this theory that you you reach a certain age, and and you know, a young age, you're developing the technologies or you're helping find a use for them. And there's a certain cutoff point where you think they're stupid. You know, for my father, that was email, you know. Um, but but so with, with, with the kind of new, I don't know, generation, they're not so new, but whatever, you know, cryptocurrency, NFTs, the metaverse. I mean, these are all in a category of things that may or may not dramatically remake our future and that some people don't get or don't think are valid is, you know, hit that cutoff line. I think they're stupid. You know, are these things I ticked off, are they the future? We just have to kind of just orient ourselves toward understanding that the world is going to change dramatically. I guess the, the, the wise path to do this, I think, is to always say in a new technology that has enough actual traction, not just heat people talking about it. Um, there is an element there that will be part of the future. And part of when you're thinking about predicting the future, innovating, understanding which parts of it, is you go, okay, which pieces of this will be persistent? So for example, you take TikTok, you say, ah, just a bunch of entertainment, a bunch of people wasting time, et cetera. It's like, well, but look at the raw usage and the raw demand of it and the fact that it has so much engagement uh, for it. And yes, you know, it's, it's playing uh, an AI recommendation engine, to try to get things that are most interesting to you, which can be addictive, but also, by the way, you know, are kind of revealing your real preferences. So if you go into TikTok and you just kind of resolutely only look at instructional, educational things, all of a sudden you could be shown a whole bunch of that. So it is a Rorschach test in a mirror in this world. But you look at it and you go, okay, some of this is going to be the future. And one of the things that's interesting is it evolves and changes. So, okay, what are the things, the pieces that are most fundamental to it? And how do I do those pieces in a way that I'm 
I'm skating to where the puck is going, not necessarily where the puck is, because there are elements of where it is. And so I think that's true of three and crypto. I think that's true of you know AR and VR. I think it's true of metaverse uh, even. I just think that it's you have to look at what are the actual patterns that are happening. And that was the reason on the metaverse I was gesturing at, you know, Zoom and Teams and so forth. There's ways of doing this. The um, but uh, but it was like okay, what do you see? And then you say, well, okay, what's really going on in crypto? It's like, well, actually, in fact, there's a whole bunch of innovation going on. There's smart contracts. There's um, distributed assets. Um, there's a question of a new banking infrastructure layer that's kind of part of the reason to call it Web3, that you have a distributed ledger where ledgers are platforms. And so when the NFTs look a little strange initially, but I can nearly guarantee you there will be something interesting about NFTs that will be mass market within call it two years, right? It isn't just like I'm buying a board ape or a crypto kitty or something else, but it's kind of like the the something like, oh, that actually, in fact, really matters. And that kind of uniqueness thing matters. And so you you look at it and you don't go, oh, I just go, the whole thing's dumb. Okay, if there's heat, what's the thing that's persistent and will innovate and come off of? And that's the interesting place to continually be part of the future on this. So if you've got another sec, I, I, I have one last question and I want to talk to you about talent. I mean, you've, you've written books about, about talent and the relationship between, you know, employers and employees. And so there are a couple of questions that have come in. And, you know, one from Donna from Massachusetts is the question of recruiting, which feeds into, uh, you know, a number of issues, the, the desire to have a diverse workforce, uh, the ability to have a distributed workforce. Um, but then questions, her question is really geography, that Silicon Valley is, is too expensive for a lot of people and, and that sort of hurts your recruiting. And then, then there's a question, Sarah from Phoenix, about the anti-work trend. People who feel really disenfranch disenfranchised but by what they perceive as the uncaring nature of their employee and maybe the whole system. So, so this is, I, I'm throwing sort of the big talent question. How do we think about recruiting the teams that we need as everything is getting sort of blown up? So I think it's one of the things that is kind of most key when you're thinking about uh, innovation. So, you know, obviously I, I published the Alliance um, uh, with uh, HBR um, because it was, you know, the, uh, one of the things I love about HBR is it's kind of so focused on these key areas that may not be quite as obvious like talent um, for how do you create and innovate in the future? And the Alliance was how do you recruit and manage innovative talent uh, and innovative talent wants to play into the future. Um, and so um, I think that the question about caring is, is doing things where you show that you care about the world and you care about where the talent's going. And part of, of course, the alliance is you care about where their careers are going, not just as a function of what's good for you, that maybe they're, gonna, they're going to evolve um, and become leaders in your own company, which would be awesome. But you know, one of the things that uh, some of the leaders at LinkedIn, um, you know, like Kevin Scott, who's now the CTO of Microsoft, would ask people in interviews is, what's the next job you want after LinkedIn? Because our commitment to you and our commitment to you as part of our team is we will transform your career. And we love it if you work at LinkedIn your entire life. But we also want to make sure that, that, that whatever happens next, you do amazing work for us and you have an amazing career, including and possibly in other places. And that's part of where you can show that people are, are caring about it. And then when you have volatility like this, it's, it's what I think uh, Ryan Ruslansky and other folks have referred to as the great reshuffle, which I think is right. The great resignation is a great kind of media PR line, but it's really a reshuffle. And how do you, how do you get that reshuffle? Because you get in this kind of the, 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 this, the pandemic asteroid has hit the economy. 
what happens in terms of people saying, well, now I can try this, or now I can take the risk of this, or now this, I've rethought it, my priority is X. Um, and how do you uh, uh, turn that kind of crisis and change and volatility and opportunity? And always be thinking about like your company's capabilities are entirely the organization and composition of the talent that you have. Yes, you might have a great financial business, you have a great position, a great product, but the future is being driven by a talent. And so focusing on, on talent strategy is a key thing of what you're doing and a key differentiator for your company is an obvious thing to be doing. So Reid Hoffman, I want to thank you for being on HBR's The New World of Work. Uh, you said you want to do more of these things. I would love to figure out more ways to, to do things with you together. That Me was, too. That was a great conversation. Awesome. Thanks. All right, so uh, I also want to thank uh, our friends at Unisys, our sponsor, our guest next week. So that will be Wednesday, January 12th at 12 noon Eastern time. Will be Carol Tomei the CEO of UPS. We'll talk about how UPS has shaken up its business model since she took over and about her thoughts on diversity, about good jobs and about stakeholder capitalism. Thank you for being with us. If you're an HBR subscriber, head to hbr.org slash newsletters to sign up for the new World of Work news, uh, newsletter. Anyway, I'm Adi Ignatius, Editor-in-Chief of Harvard Business Review, and we will see you again next week.